You're listening to another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I wanted to try something new today with the podcast. As I've become older and more seasoned, I've had a growing interest in history and the history of things, particularly in medicine. I was never really a big history fan in high school. I tolerated it. And don't get me wrong, I had some great teachers of history in high school. But I was much more of a science and math nerd, as you would expect for a doctor. For a while, I wanted to do an episode about Osgood Schlatter apophysitis, which is such a common problem in pediatrics. I started to do some digging into Osgood Schlatter and found some historical articles about it and thought I'd take an episode to talk about some of these interesting things I found and ways it was managed a century ago. Let's get some plutonium in the DeLorean and take a trip back a century ago and talk some Osgood Schlatter. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Osgood Schlatter, you've probably heard about it before if you've done even a brief stint in pediatric sports medicine. I'm sure you've had some parents and kids destroy the pronunciation of it as well. But what are its origins? A while back, I was looking into doing an episode just about research on Osgood Schlatter itself, and I stumbled across Dr. Robert Osgood's original article about things from 1903. This led me discovering a few other articles from the distant past about this condition. So let's dive in. Uh, Unfortunately, I couldn't find the original article that was published by Dr. Carl Schlatter, but without Google Translate, it probably wouldn't have been able to make much of it anyway, since he was a Swiss surgeon and it was published in, I believe, obviously a different language. But Dr. Osgood published an article in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal on January 29th, 1903, now 120 years ago, and it was titled Lesions of the Tibial Tubercle Occurring During Adolescence. Both Osgood and Schlatter published in 1903, but interestingly, some articles reference Schlatter describing things from 1908, so I'm assuming there might be a follow-up article out there that I just couldn't find the reference for. I thought it'd be fun reading some of the four articles I reviewed to get a possible wow or chuckle about what was recommended and how it was described over a century ago, but it's also humbling to think about things that I've written during my career and how someone may look back at those and say how wrong we had it. So Osgood starts off with this introduction. Fractures of the tubercle of the tibia have for many years been recognized and have been considered almost as curiosities. The reported cases are nearly all of those fracture and marked separation and are undoubtedly rare. There are, however, other lesions representing less severe forms of injury to the tubercle. And then I found the description of the development of the tubercle a little entertaining. The tubercle of the tibia develops ordinarily from the upper epiphysis of the tibia by the ossification of a tongue-like process extending downwards over the anterior surface of the diaphysis. Now, I don't know that I've ever really pictured the apophysis as an actual tongue, but looking at it now and the description of it, it absolutely does look like a tongue. And I think I'm never going to look at it the same way again as I look at x-rays of the tibial tubercle apophysis. The article then has 12 figures that are a bunch of essentially lateral x-rays of the knee, but not the way we would view them today. They essentially look like a bunch of x-rays you'd get with your digital imaging and then using the invert feature. So basically all the bones are are black instead of white. And it's really honestly hard on any of these pictures that I had of from the article to even see the physes on these x-rays. So the way that they did the penetration for this was not great. So 
I, I feel it would be hard, and except for really obvious fractures, to even find fractures based on these types of radiographs that they were printing. Now, maybe just the technique as far as how they translated those into a print rather than what they were actually to see. But at least looking at what I saw in the article there, it would have been really hard to determine much of anything from anatomy. I then liked his description in the section of anatomy of the tubercle during adolescence. To the tip of a tongue-like process of bone or to the separate bone center is attached the tendon of one of the most powerful muscle groups in the body. And I don't know about you, when I describe Oshkosh Slaughter to my patients, I talk to them a lot about that the problem is this traction apophysitis and that the basically the, the patellar tendon or the quadriceps, whatever way you want to describe it, is overpowering the tibial tubercle. And having this is calling that one of the most powerful muscle groups in the body. I like that description there. And I think the next description of his anatomical dissection and experiment would certainly be interesting to those who love anatomy and probably any of my surgical colleagues who listen to the podcast. With a chisel, the tibial tubercle was then fractured, leaving the patellar tendon still attached to it. The few fibers of the tendon continued below the tubercle, and the slight insertion into the tendon of the above-mentioned lateral expansions were divided. The patellar tendon was now isolated well above the deep bursa. The conditions were now analogous to the complete fracture of the tubercle and a detachment of the patellar tendon from its point of pull. The knee was flexed, and barely a quarter of an inch separation of the tubercle from its original situation occurred. The tubercle was then replaced and held loosely in position. By traction on the isolated quadriceps, it was found that the knee could be practically fully extended without any difficulty, and that about one-fourth of an inch displacement of the tubercle occurred. The first pull was transmitted mainly to the patella tendon and tubercle, and when that had yielded barely one-fourth of an inch, it was adequately taken by the lateral expansions of the tendon of the quadriceps. The dissection made evident the strength of these expansions and the ability to act as tendons of insertion with a detached patella tendon, and also the fact that the knee could readily be extended with the attachment of the patella tendon gone. I found that kind of interesting as far as thinking about that, listening to this a little bit. He then goes on to reference various other descriptions of fractures of the tibial tubercle previously published. In 1853, De Morgan and A. Shaw both reported cases of fracture of the tibial tubercle due to muscular action. But De Morgan's case was in a so-called scruffulous, poorly developed person, and Shaw's occurred in a boy whose patella was ankylosed. In 1869, Dr. Paul Voigt reported the first case of record of typical fracture of the tibial tubercle. This case is so typical of the case of subjects and the method of production of this form of lesion that an abstract of it is given. A thin, muscular boy, 16 years old, exercising the gymnasium, slipped from a jumping board and gave a sudden muscular jerk backwards to prevent himself from falling. He felt immediate acute pain in the right knee, and he could not step or move the leg forward. The physical examination showed a marked effusion into the joint. The right patella was drawn up higher than the left, and six centimeters below its lower edge, in which no change could be felt, was a bony knob covered by tense skin, movable and resting two centimeters from the tibial crest. On movement, crepitus could be elicited. By strongly pushing downwards on the patella, this fragment could be made to approach the tibial crest. After the effusion had subsided under appropriate treatment, attempts to completely replace the fragment were still unsuccessful. Firm fibrous union finally occurred, and through sight lateral motion was still possible, a good functional result was obtained. There are about 12 cases reported of this injury. With one or two exceptions, they have occurred in athletic youths during the adolescence and have been due to the violent contraction of the quadriceps extensor. This lesion may be produced more rarely by direct violence, the patient usually falling with the knee flexed on a hard surface. The clinical picture with the marked swelling and effusion, which usually occur, may well be mistaken for a fractured patella or even a dislocated semilunar cartilage. And in case you're wondering, that is the meniscus as far as what he's referring to there. 
The conservative treatment of complete immobilization for six to eight weeks has uniformly brought about a return to practically normal function in the reported cases, even though the fragment is still not completely restored to its old position. Ogilvy Will, mistaking an avulsion of the tubercle for a broken patella, operated upon a boy, and, discovering the true lesion replaced the tubercle, thrust his drill through the fragment into the tibial shaft and obtained quick union. The drill was removed in three weeks. He recommends operation. And then finally, he describes more of what we have come to know as Oshkosh slaughter disease. So I'm going to finish reading some excerpts of sections of what he describes as separation of the fragment, where he introduces this concept. He talks about the clinical picture, the diagnoses, the treatment, and then prognosis, and finally his article conclusion. But I'm going to skip over a few parts in the original article, but I'm going to read through this as far as how he described basically the start of Oshkosh disease, I guess, in this place, or what eventually became known as Oshkosh slaughter. It is possible, however, to have a partial separation of the tubercle and the interference with normal function to be so slight that the condition is often unrecognized and the diagnosis made of a bursitis or periostitis or even a joint fringe. The clinical picture is these lesions occur in boys at or shortly after the age of puberty. In eight of the 10 cases collected, the boys were between 14 and 15 years of age. One was 13 and the other 16. The boys were all active, athletic, and well-developed muscularly. The histories and clinical pictures are all very similar. In the gymnasium, in running, in a football game, or in some athletic sport, the knee is, quote, strained, unquote. This so-called strain is usually found on questioning to have been caused by the sudden violent extension of the leg, namely by the strong contraction of the quadriceps. More rarely, there is associated a fall on a flexed knee, which would, of course, bring a sudden involuntary strain on the patellar tendon associated with trauma. At the time of the injury, there is felt acute pain in the knee referred to below the patella. There is often slight swelling, either general or pretty definitely localized over the region of the tubercle. There is distinct tenderness at this point. The ability to use the leg is only slightly diminished, and the acute pain is soon replaced by a feeling of weakness on strong exertion. Sharp pain is present on violent extension or extreme flexion of the leg, and the patient usually consults the surgeon because of this pain, the annoying weakness, and the continued localized swelling or tenderness. The condition presents no complete loss of function, but a severe handicap to the active athletic life which this class of patients wishes to lead. In the diagnosis section, he describes, in these cases, the thing clinically which we must suppose to occur and which the x-rays confirm is that a violent contraction or sudden strain of the quadriceps extensor partially ruptures the cartilaginous union of the tongue-like prolongation of the upper epiphysis or the separate ossifying center. Subsequent exertion of any kind and sometimes the ordinary walking pull of the quadriceps irritates the injured cartilage and gives rise to discomfort until advice is sought or bony union at length takes place. It must be very definitively borne in mind, however, that the normal adolescent tibial tubercle when ossification is going on often appears in the x-rays to be separated from the tibial crest. This is mentioned and illustrated by Dr. Robert Lovett in the Philadelphia Medical Journal in January 6th of 1900. The precaution of taking both knees in exactly the same plane and with the Crookes tube focused over symmetrical points must also be observed before the x-ray can be relied upon as final evidence of this injury. In the description of treatment, the bursa directly over the tubercle and beneath the patella tendon in a small percentage of cases communicates directly with the joint. There may be enough bursitis set up to bring about a definitive synovitis for which complete immobilization may be necessary. Ordinarily, treatment directed towards lessening the pull of the patellar tendon and restricting motion is adequate for the relief of the symptoms. A tightly applied crisscross strapping of adhesive plaster extending around two-thirds of the circumference of the leg and applied from perhaps one inch below the tubercle to one inch above the lower border of the patella 
has proved a satisfactory method of accomplishing this end. This is renewed as it becomes loosened, perhaps every 10 days, for about a month, and a flannel bandage worn for a few weeks after this. A case in which the end result is shown in figure 11 had been treated unintelligently because of failure to make the diagnosis, and the history has been one of a considerable pain and annoyance coupled with restricted exercise for a period of years. Prognosis with treatment has been uniformly good to relieve pain and restoration of function. In his conclusion, which I, I like this little phrase here, there's a little bit more in the section on conclusion. They do not cause complete loss of function, but without treatment, a long continued serious annoyance. And I think that's what most of our patients would kind of describe Oshkosh Schlatter as. We'll be right back after this quick break. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. And now back to the podcast. So I found three more articles, one from Dr. Robert Taff, which was listed as being read before the Radiologic Society of North America in Chicago on December 6th of 1928. There's also a May 1944 article from Dr. Eben Urey, U-H-R-Y Jr. in the Archives of Surgery. And finally, an article by Dr. William Crindlebaugh from Iowa City and Dr. Alvin Wyman from San Diego, published in April of 1948 in the American Journal of Surgery. I'll start by reading some excerpts from the 1928 Taft article, which had a few case reports. Since Osgood described a lesion of the adolescent tibial tuberosity in 1903, various men have collected small series of cases, and each has given his opinion as to the etiology. Again, Schlatter in 1908 described a similar condition, which is now recognized as a clinical entity and generally known as Osgood-Schlatter's disease, though occasionally as Schlatter's disease. It is interesting to note that as far back as 1869, the condition was described, but of course, no very definitive information was given, as this was before Rentgen's epical discovery. A search of the literature shows that this disease is not often reported, as most of the authors base their observations on one or two cases, and the greatest number cited by any one author is 17. Bader states that only one case was found in the Cincinnati General Hospital in six years. The author has picked up eight cases in 26 months, 
And during that time, he radiographed only 26 knees of youth between the age of 12 and 18 for fractures, foreign bodies, and all other causes. This leads him to believe that there must be a high incidence of it in the South. The belief is held that if the large number of supposedly normal schoolboys were subjected to x-ray examination, a proportion of them would show the disease. No conclusion can be drawn except that it is much more common in boys than girls. There is almost always a history of slight injuries such as a kick on the tubercle, a fall on it, a sudden strain sustained from a jump as in diving from a springboard, or a sudden lifting from the stooping position to the erect. The pain continues and is so severe, out of proportion to so slight an injury. At this time, the radiograph is essential to confirmation and both knees should be filmed for comparison. Although a bilateral condition is often seen, one side giving no clinical symptoms with similar Brentigan findings. The following have been given as causes, faulty development, endocrine dysfunction, infection, tuberculosis of the epiphysis, rickets, and simple trauma. The author believes that it is purely traumatic in origin, although the trauma may be so slight as to escape notice. The author believes that the description which follows accounts for the condition completely. The sudden strain or injury causes a partial pulling loose of the patellar ligament from the tubercle, and as the patient continues to use the leg for some time, there is a constant irritation with the resulting stimulation of osteoblasts. As a result of the motion, the bone is not laid down evenly, but in small spots, which gives rise to the ragged appearance as seen on the radiograph. A physician aged 31 on hearing a discussion of this disease realized that he had had the condition when a boy of 14. It was diagnosed at that time as a bursitis and not treated. After several years, it cleared up, leaving no tenderness but a marked enlargement of the tubercles. A radiograph taken at the time of discussion of the case shows the increase of bony production, which is exactly the way in which we would expect it to heal. The information can now not be substantiated, but it is highly probable. In regard to treatment in the author series, simple splinting has been all that the attending physicians have used, and in some cases, elastic web bandages, which are not satisfactory, or leather cuffs. No surgery has been necessary on any of the cases of this series, but in some cases of other authors, the tubercle has been curetted or a bone peg used to anchor the patellar ligament. And then one final case report. On November 20th, 1927, a boy, JT, 15 years old, was brought in for the radiographic examination of the left knee. He was the son of a physician specializing in eye, ear, nose, and throat practice. His father and mother were in perfect health, as were several brothers and sisters, none of whom had had any similar trouble. The past history was essentially negative, nothing to indicate rickets, lose, or tuberculosis. And at the time of examination, he appeared a healthy, well-developed, active boy. While playing school football, he had been tackled and was thrown on the knee. The knee became swollen and quite tender. A bilateral radiograph showed the right knee and tibial tubercle normal for a boy of his age. On the left, there was the ragged, moth-eaten appearance of Osgood Schlatter's. A surgeon who was called in was finally convinced that there was such a disease entity. A stiff leather cuff about 14 inches long was worn for several months, at the expiration of which time the pain has subsided. Radiographs made in February and May 1928 showed little change in the appearance, but at present, October of 1928, the clinical symptoms are practically negative, although there is slight pain on exertion. I thought it was kind of interesting how this particular author, Dr. Taft, referred to himself initially in the third person. I thought the case reports were, were kind of interesting too, just listening to the descriptions of how they went through this in general. In the article by Uri in 1948, he published on 79 cases from the records of the Hospital for Joint Diseases. Here are some excerpts. In the original papers, both published in 1903, Osgood and Schlatter defended the idea that the condition is a manifestation of minor trauma at the site of insertion of the patellar ligament into the tibia in the region of the tubercle. A 
Apparently, the disorder results from either functional abuse or a frank insult to the region in question at the time when its developing anatomic structure withstands most poorly the stress of its function. So these were 79 unselected cases from the records of the Hospital for Joint Diseases. Specifically, Table 1 shows that the onset of the symptoms was most frequently in the age period of 11 to 13 years, and the symptoms most commonly reached a severity sufficient to make the patient seek medical care between the ages of 12 and 15. As to sex, males were definitely in the majority. There were 66 boys and only 13 girls. Specifically, the right was the site of the lesion in 27 cases and the left in 25, where in additional 24 cases, there were bilateral lesions. These observations are in disagreement with the general previous trend of opinion. See, for instance, Schlatter, according to which the condition occurs much more commonly on the right side than on the left. The disorder usually appears in well-developed and active subjects who may give a history of injury, although many do not associate any such occurrence with the appearance of the disease. As the data show, the disorder may be bilateral, but is more commonly unilateral. The severity, duration, and degree of incapacitation vary widely from case to case. In the majority of instances, the course of the disorder is limited by the somewhat early closure of the apophyseal cartilage plate. Although in a small number of cases in which there is a delay in apophyseal closure, the symptoms, pain or tenderness, limitation of function, etc., may persist well into the third decade. And actually, just as a side note, this is the first reference I saw in any of the articles that I read of calling it the apophysis rather than an extension of the epiphysis. This is talking about x-rays now. So sometimes it also appeared that the tongue had been pried slightly upward, its prominence being increased and on the space between it and the underlying tibia being abnormally wide. The age is cited for the ossification center of the tubercle ranges between 8 and 15 years, but probably no such range exists in fact. Indeed, it seems that in most instances, the ossification center appears at just about 11 years. By about the 14th year of life, the apophysis presents itself rentographically as a sort of beak or tongue. This part of the study is based as noted on examination of 23 adequate specimens taken from 20 subjects. I gathered that in general, the area of the tibial tubercle appeared injected and there was increased vascularity of the overlying soft tissues. Furthermore, in some cases, there was increased mobility of the tubercle, since when the latter was firmly grasped, the tongue could be forcibly moved from side to side. There was never any evidence of true fragmentation of the tubercle. Occasionally, a focus of intraligamentous ossification was found. It is evident that the fundamental pathologic change in Osgood slaughter is separation of two or more structures comprising the tibial tubercle complex, with the interposition of scar tissue between them. In 13 of the 23 specimens, the scar callus was seen between the patellar ligament and the apophysis, that is, on the anterior face of the tibial tubercle. In three others, it was present on the posterior surface of the apophyseal cartilage plate. In four others, it was between the zone of growth at the junction between the columns of peripheral cartilage and the newly formed endochondral bone. In each of the remaining three specimens, a double lesion was present. As specimen after specimen was examined, evidence accumulated that early in the evolution of the pathologic picture, organization of hemorrhage had occurred. Indeed, in some specimens, free hemorrhage and hemosiderin pigment were still seen in the organizing reactive connective tissue. In many cases, fragments of necrotic bone undergoing resorption were seen in the connective tissue scar. In other specimens, trabeculae of new bone were being formed in the scar callus after the manner of fibrous callus. Occasionally, a sparse intermingling of lymphocytes was to be seen, but there was no evidence of specific or nonspecific inflammation. Trauma is the causative factor most frequently mentioned in connection with osgood slaughter disease. However, a large body of the literature, while recognizing the important role of trauma in the immediate causation of the disorder, defends the idea that the trauma acts on a tibial tubercle area which is constitutionally inferior or is already otherwise diseased. I am among those who reject the idea of these predisposing influences in this disorder. I really like this kind of description, just thinking about kind of the, the traction forces here. 
It is a familiar fact that when a heavy or adherent objects are pulled along a board floor in the direction of the grain of the boards, splinters, which are the result of fractures of wood fibers, are much more likely to be raised than when the stress is applied across the grain of the wood. Under the force of the quadriceps muscle, there is a similar tendency for the tibial tubercle to be pried upward. And then finally, as far as description of treatment, the spontaneous healing that occurs in many cases after inadequate immobilization or even no immobilization at all indicates that many small lesions must heal without any support to the natural process of repair. Nevertheless, it appears to me that in general, the condition should be treated as solutions of continuity with little displacement are treated elsewhere in the skeletal system, that is, by early immobilization. Failure of this measure justifiably leads the surgeon to use of methods indicated in the cases of non-union of true fractures, such as excision of useless fragments, freshening of opposing surfaces, reposition of displaced structures, and renewed immobilization. Drilling on the assumption that the disorder represents an osteochondritis is unwarranted as a rule, and its use as a method of favoring new channels for vascularization and healing of a site of old non-union is under contest at this time. Needling of the apophyseal plate to speed its destruction and closure will not attack the more frequent site of involvement, the anterior face of the tubercle. So I found it interesting, a couple things, is with some of this, these studies pathologically, they didn't find any inflammation. And we talk about that a lot. I don't consider it an inflammatory condition. I consider it a stress lesion to the bone of the tibial tubercle, and I treat it as such. I certainly don't do any immobilization, as was the case that seems very frequent early on in the course of Auschwitz-Lauter. But it's interesting how we start to see some favoring of differences here where it sounds like as more and more experience with Oscar Schlatter has been going on, people are starting to get this trend here that, hey, maybe it isn't all traumatic and maybe there are these cases and maybe just benign neglect can actually get most of these cases better. So maybe we don't have to be as aggressive as it sounds like sometimes these have. The final article from Crindleball and Wyman describes their experience and theories of the condition from naval recruits. It also seems difficult to understand how the extensive x-ray findings of Schlatter's disease could develop in the few days elapsing between the date of trauma and the date of x-ray in those few patients who report to their physician immediately after trauma and the onset of symptoms. O'Kane believes there may be two distinct groups of cases, one purely traumatic, the other a case of new bone formation in the patellar ligament. Some authors have observed signs of inflammation of the tubercle with redness, increased local heat, tenderness, and swelling. In our series, no patient showed any evidence of such an acute process. The term epiphysitis, often applied to the condition described by Osgood in 1903 and Schlatter in 1908, is an inappropriate one since it indicates an inflammatory process. A similar disadvantage holds for osteochondritis, while osteochondrosis is better. For this reason, no term thus far used is completely satisfactory. True Osgood-Schlatter's disease, if the term is to remain in medical language, should be reserved for a necrosing process of the tibial tubercle, with a deposition of osteoid tissue following necrosis and reossification after healing. So I don't think that that's how we would kind of typically describe this or think of Oshkosh Slaughter. That's a little different than what we see. And this final part here talks a little bit about cases. The average duration of symptoms was 3.5 years, and of these 13 coming under observation in only four, and that's 30.8%, had these symptoms been severe enough for them to seek medical advice. One may, of course, wonder if many men would not report to a free Navy sick call with symptoms, the severity of which would never take them to a doctor were they in civilian life. However, it is our opinion that in the majority of cases, these men had legitimate symptoms, and according to their statement, these symptoms were considerably increased by the working, drilling, and exercising on the cement drill fields of the training center. As far as treatment, most authors are of the opinion that conservative treatment with posterior splints, cylindrical casting, taping, or ace bandaging over the tubercle, and or bed rest is the treatment of choice in the early case. 
the consensus favors a trial of such treatment before more radical measures are attempted. There is also more or less general agreement that in the cases in which symptoms persist beyond four to six months under conservative therapy, operative intervention should be employed if early cure is to be accomplished. Our therapy was, as in all conservative therapy, directed towards relieving the pull of the quadriceps on the tibial tubercle. This was attempted with cross-strapping as diagrammed, and in some cases the employment of a circular ace bandage around the tubercle area. The greatest difficulty was the fact that in the vigorous exercise necessary in the man's daily activity, the taping would seldom stay in place for more than 48 hours. In all cases, however, the tape was continually reapplied as long as the skin irritation did not form a contraindication. In light of the aforementioned difficulties encountered in treatment, we believe that the observed 46.1% improvement in this group is of sudden significance. The tape was applied in the following manner. With the patient sitting, the leg was placed in a relaxed extension by allowing the heel to rest on a low stool without supporting the knee. After shaving the leg and applying compound tincture of benzoin to the skin, the crisp cross tapes were applied from above downward with the traction force being applied downward in an attempt to relax the tension of the infrapatellar tendon and insofar as possible limit flexion of the knee. In addition, tape was applied in a circular fashion over the tubercle itself. In all cases, we were careful not to encircle the extremity completely with tape. I find it interesting kind of their description here. I'm not sure. It sounds like a little bit almost like they're trying to do a patellar tendon strap, but a little bit more complicated and also limiting some of the degree of flexion or extension to the knee also seems a little bit extreme. That's the final article. I just wanted to include just some excerpts from each of those because I think it was interesting. Some of these areas, as I was reading through these articles, I highlighted several sections, just either the case reports, which I thought were interesting, or kind of their descriptions of the history or clinical exam or specifically methods of treatment. I do hope you enjoyed this walk through some of this medical history. I really do eat this stuff up. I think it's important to remember where we came from in medicine as in life. What we've thought about in the past, how we've come to current thinking, and just seeing how medicine has followed the science as time goes on. We don't have all the answers at the start, as evident by Osgood's original article. But we must start somewhere with our knowledge base and someone offering some ideas and theories, and we use our experience and our research to guide future recommendations. That's science and that's medicine. It's what in part keeps me going with this field. So be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicine.com. Thanks to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network for their expertise in producing this show. Thank you to the listeners for giving me the inspiration and desire to keep making more episodes. It truly means a lot to me and for my attempts at different formats for sports medicine education. We're over on Instagram and threads now, as well as at Ped Sports Pod. So if you want to follow us there, as well as that place now called X, please do so. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.